Hi, I'm Tej Singh, and welcome to Office Hours with Dormroom Fund, where we interview some of the most successful people in startups, technology, and corporate America. Dormroom Fund is a student-run venture capital firm backed by First Run Capital. We write seed checks of $20,000 into startups founded by fellow students. Since our founding in 2014, we've funded over 275 startups, which are now collectively worth over a billion dollars and have gone on to raise over $500 million in follow-on funding from Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, Excel, and others. To pitch us, go to dormroomfund.com. Enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Tate Singh, and today I'm joined by Brian Chen, the co-founder and CEO of Room. Thanks so much for being with us here today. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your childhood. Where'd you grow up? See, I was born in a suburb of Denver, Colorado, um, and then I lived there until the age of 11, at which point I moved to Taiwan with my parents. Why'd you move to Taiwan? My parents are originally from Taiwan, so I moved back with them. And what was that whole experience like transitioning? Honestly, uh, I think that there could not be like two more different places, right? Colorado's in the mountains. It's incredibly dry. Uh, I was in really an all-white neighborhood out of, in my elementary school of 500 kids. I think there were three Asian kids, really? one black kid, right? So um, uh, not very diverse. And then obviously when I moved to Taiwan, uh, it was also a very homogenous society, but in the opposite direction. It was um, really all Chinese you know, all or I uh, mean Taiwanese. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, t- what were? Um, did you have any siblings? Yeah, I have two older sisters. Do you have any funny stories of stuff you did wrong, but then pinned it on your sister? <laughs> um, no, you know they were. Um, they're seven and eight years older than me, so I was definitely the the little baby brother. I think they were. Um, more looking out for me than anything else. Are there any eccentric family traditions that have been passed down that you remember fondly? Eccentric family traditions. Well, like LeBron has a Taco Tuesday. So do you, did you have a, something of similar food or any uh, holiday that you... Um, I'm trying to think. Um, no, I, you know, I think maybe, you know, if for... Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was such a novel holiday in, in for us because that was, you know, we had never, uh, it was not a, a Taiwanese tradition. So um, it would always be like the, the Taiwanese community in Colorado getting together at one family's house and having a big get together. That was, you know, always a lot of fun. Yeah, that's quite interesting. What's your earliest memory? Earliest memory? Wow. Um, I, I have a, I think probably just crawling around the basement of, you know, one of, um, uh, the, the first home where I lived and, um, playing with my parents and grandparents. Did you get into trouble a lot? What was the worst thing you did? So I, I think as a, as a kid, I, um, I, I, I remember putting, um, some screwdrivers up uh, an electrical outlet. Oh God. And, uh, got in trouble for that um, did you get shocked uh, no no it wasn't you, i didn't oh, get shocked, they couldn't get but, into uh, it because they're too big right yeah 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 um was there any particular teacher that you remember or any subject that you just loved or hated yeah i so i uh in high school i had a great um I had a few great english literature teachers and um ultimately that's kind of what drove me to um studying english lit in college uh so um 
yeah, it's quite the unusual major for a for an Asian person, right? Usually, it's usually a STEM or math. Or yeah. yeah. What do your parents think? My parents, you know, I think that when you're the third child, they kind of uh, give up and they kind of <laughs> give up, and they kind of, as long as you're uh, doing something, <laughs> as long as you go to school, um, then I think it's fine. What do you think your life would be like when you were older? What were some of your aspirations? So I I really remember the first time that I heard um, the word entrepreneur, and honestly, like I. Oh, since a kid, wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew that I wanted to uh, start my own business and try to build a meaningful company. And do you did you have any entrepreneurial pursuits? Like, did you sell baseball cards or trade, you know, on eBay? Well, yeah, one of the earlier things I remember was in in middle school. Um, we um, we had this like. Uh, school stock exchange where all the students were asked to kind of build their own businesses and I remember just finding it such a fun and fascinating exercise of trying to think about like uh, how to organize a business how to how to how to build create it and um, that was I think um, I I just remember loving that and approaching that project with so much passion that uh, it kind of confirmed for me that like that's what I wanted to do. How would your classmates remember you? Um, I think that I was, I've, I've always been a very um, kind of soft-spoken, uh, helpful, friendly guy. Yeah. Um, I like having, I like playing sports and um, just, you know, pretty laid back. What's, uh, what did you do in college? Any exciting activities? In college, my biggest, um, Kind of like outside of just academics uh, was ultimate frisbee. Did so going back to the whole lit thing. Did you like writing papers? I hate writing. It's I can't think. It's it's hard to come up with like a, a ten page paper. Like where do you get the, you know started? How you how do you write that much? Like I think that uh, the thinking that I think that being able to write like a strong essay just forces really sh- strong thinking, and I think. Um, that has just been an invaluable skill. So whether I enjoyed it or not, um, I don't know that I would say that I enjoyed it, but uh, I definitely appreciate the yeah. the number of papers and essays I've had to write yeah. in my lifetime. Call me Ishmael. Is, is that a line? That's a famous line, right? Call me Ishmael. That's um, Mo- Moby, Moby Dick. Dick. Yeah. yeah. Well, who yeah. are some of your favorite authors? Um, love. Um, I really enjoyed reading uh, the works of David Foster Wallace, Jonathan Franzen. Oh, I wasn't. Uh, he was the one who lived in Boston, right? Or right, like Walden. He wrote Walden, didn't he? Right? Or the no, Walden the, Pond. He was Walden is David Thoreau. Oh, okay. David well, Foster yeah, Wallace. Yeah, I'm more mixing up my philosophers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing oh, you're. Oh wait, not wait, wait. I did. I, no, I, I have read David. What are some of his uh, works? Um, I can't. There's a. Uh, infinite jest. Oh wait, I remember it. He wrote about the, like grammar and import uh, importance of like. Uh, I I did it in eleventh grade. I remember. I don't remember what it was, but I remember that piece. Um, yeah, he wrote. On, I mean, he's written about a lot of different topics, but yeah, uh, no, he's he's excellent. So so not really like James Patterson for you or. Uh, no, or, no. Uh, um, J.K. Rowling, Rowling. I I have read all Harry Potter. So okay, <laughs> what did you think of the series? Uh, did you also like, for example? The Famous Five or Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys. Were you into that stuff growing up? Um, 
yeah, I mean, I definitely read them. I don't, those are, or the Hardy Boys, I don't really recall that much, or like mm-hmm. the specifics of it. But, um, you know, I have a nephew um, uh, who is currently in sixth grade, and I like, my favorite thing to do is give him books that I, I really loved. Like, I gave him Banner in the Sky, um, which is a great novel. Um, where the Redfern grows. There, yeah, a few. There are a few, definitely a few novels uh, from when I was a kid that I remember just loving. As a child, my favorite series was Magic Treehouse. I don't know if uh, no, I don't know that one back then. Yeah. Anyway, who uh, who's been the biggest influence on your life? Biggest influence, um, probably my grandfather. Yeah, and he. Uh, so one of the the reasons we moved back to Taiwan was uh, just for my parents to be closer to their parents, um, and uh, my grandfather was has always been a role model for me. So talk about teaching English in Ecuador and what that taught you about leadership, and uh, the backstory. Like, why'd you go to Ecuador? <laughs> yeah, I so I went to a liberal arts college, Swarthmore, which is thirty minutes away from Penn. Um, and I think like any good liberal arts college, uh, any good liberal arts student, um, you kind of leave with like a lot of just like books in your mind and not a lot of practical skill. Um, and I, I was just craving, um, a, a life experience. Uh, I wanted to be forced to live in a, a country where that I had never lived before. I, I wanted to learn Spanish. I wanted to be forced to be just really kind of uncomfortable, um, and so the opportunity came up where a classmate of mine, um, had grown up in Ecuador and I got connected to this high school, uh, where there was a teaching opportunity and I actually went with uh, one of my best friends from college and we both became teachers there for a year. What grade did you teach? I taught ninth and 10th grade English. So yeah, it was kind of an opportunity for me. It was like, you know, I, I my English teachers had been highly impactful for me in terms of how I think about the world and, um, it was an opportunity to kind of uh, give back, and so uh, was really excited to try to open the minds of these ninth and tenth graders. So you were a Y Combinator alum. You were a founding member of Blue Smart. It was like a smart luggage company that helped um, pioneer all these you know, connected travel accessories. Talk about that. Where'd you come up with the idea, and uh, what yeah. was that like? Um, so it was right at the height of. Um, when Internet of Things, IoT, became um, the next wave of innovation. like The the, the predominant thinking at the time was it would be the next wave of innovation after mobile. Um, And uh, we had this thesis that, like, you know, when you start having embedded technology, you can solve a lot of problems uh, in travel. And travel is something that uh, can be highly stressful, is a very... um, uh, fractured experience and uh, we wanted to make it more seamless and make it um, an easier experience through technology. So started off with a suitcase that has location tracking and weight sensing uh, connected to your phone um, when you could lock it uh, remotely via Bluetooth. Um, so it was, yeah, I, mean, I remember uh, one of the early headlines um, when we launched on Indiegogo was uh, that this was the suitcase? Like, if James Bond, if James Bond had a suitcase, this would be it. <laughs> yeah. What is the company still around? Uh, the company. So the company's uh, ended up getting acquired by Travel Pro. Okay. Yeah. It's, the whole IoT space was really interesting. Like there was these. You know, what do you did you? Uh, Why did you start working at um, 
BlueSmart? Like, why not a typical Google or Facebook? I guess you were following some of your entrepreneurial, you know, path. Yeah, like exactly. Your feet I wanted startups. to, yeah, I wanted to be part of a company from ground zero, from uh, when the uh, it was before even like a fully fledged uh, idea. So um, my co-founders um, had been entrepreneurs before. So I was really honestly attracted by the opportunity to um, work alongside, you know, seasoned entrepreneurs and and learn the ropes because I think that there's no other way to, to learn. So then you uh, so you went to MIT Sloan, but you actually left after one semester to pursue your uh, tech venture. What was, tell us about that. Did you really hate the classes that much? No, actually, I, I uh, felt like I learned a lot in the classes and I really enjoyed my, my classmates. Um, and being at MIT was, was, yeah, in general, just a very enriching and fun experience. But... Um, you know the chance to to dive in full time and, and uh, um, be part of the Y Combinator class and uh, go through that experience was uh, very much like what I that was like what I wanted to do and so for me it was less about getting the credentials and more um, about getting to a place where I could um, start my own company and so it felt like it was really a no brainer at that point it was such a great ex- um, opportunity for me to get my hands dirty building something from scratch. So let's talk about Room. For those who don't know, can you explain it in a sentence or two or three? <laughs> yeah. Uh, at Room, we're on a mission to reimagine the modern workplace. And the first product is a uh, flat-packed phone booth that is soundproof, well-ventilated, um, made out of recycled plastic bottles, and it uh, assembles on site and provides peace and quiet in the office. So talk about some of the, the, the trends in the industry, tailwinds. Why are these booths becoming more popular? It's really a, a lot of things. Uh, the way, and a lot of it is being driven by technology. So uh, the fact that today the modern worker can work from anywhere, uh, from home, from the coffee shop, um, that means that um, you know whether or not people are in the office or not, is totally up to the the individual and so things are changing so quickly um, with how we work that it becomes a lot less uh, easy to predict how offices should be designed and planned and so what the phone booth does is it's a it's a very flexible uh, option in the office it doesn't require construction it's something that can just be assembled on site um, and it can accommodate video conferencing, remote collaboration, you know, when people... Uh, How did you do oh, video conferencing through a laptop, you know, people... Yeah, exactly, that. exactly. I th- You know, I think that uh, the degree, extent to which people are collaborating with colleagues remotely and uh, need video conferencing for selling or for, or for teamwork, uh, it's really exploding. So you need to have a dedicated space for that type of work. Uh, so that's something that's definitely driving demand for the phone booth. Yeah, that makes sense because I guess in conference rooms, they're big enough that you can fit five people in there, but you don't really need that whole space. You only need one well, booth. Yeah. <laughs> and another tailwind, honestly, is just you know uh, continued densification in cities, right? So because 
um, young workers, they want to live in the vibrant kind of dynamic environment that cities provide, uh, office real estate gets more and more expensive. So it's a tremendous waste if you have a 12-person conference room and you're using it for a one-on-one or for a, you know a phone call. And so having right-sized uh, rooms um, just improves real estate productivity tremendously. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess the the company's name is Room because you are a room now that I just it just actually until this very moment it never occurred to me that. Uh, well, you know well, the funny I'm, thing. Yeah, is, I mean, as you can guess, I'm pretty slow. <laughs> the funny thing is that we 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 call the business Room because um, because of our mission, not because it, it's it's okay. a room. It's so. Our, so our mission is to make room for people in the office. Oh, okay, right? a double entendre. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Is and, that what it, a double um, entendre? Well, and and I, I think what's what's remarkable is that uh, we spend a third of our lives in the office, and people, you talk to people, and they hate the off, the open floor plan, and there's just a level of passion and hatred about the open floor plan that sh- just shows like the industry and offices have evolved in a way to ignore the needs of people. So we felt that, like you know th- there was uh, room for um, uh, this mission about making room for people yeah it's really interesting because okay so if you look at it these offices where it's they don't have these cubicles they're just long swaths of open floor plan they look amazing and you know with the because you can see all the walls and glass and it's incredible but then when i actually sit down i get distracted because the guy next to me is doing something else and the guy in front of me i just can't focus yeah so what is the solution because the the aesthetic of the office floor plan is what so many startups go for yet the productivity gains just aren't there so room, other than room, like or even in general, like what what's happening? What what's the future? Well, so you basically have to design for different types of working activities. So uh, the the problem with open floor plan is thinking that it's a one size fits all solution. But the reality is sometimes when you're at the office, you need to collaborate. You need to be in teamwork settings. You need to, sometimes you need to be very focused and have peace and quiet. Other times you need to have a place just to relax, right? So the solution is to not make the mistake to think that you can kind of fit all of these different varied activities into a single type of environment. You have to design for this variety of environments. And actually, that is where these modular booths that we make uh, play do play a role because they help you prov- uh, provide variety in the workplace for um those different activities. How'd you come up with the idea? Uh, it's, yeah, it's 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 really funny. I mean, I definitely uh, felt the pain point personally of being in an open office and hearing people uh, call their dentist to make an That's appointment. So right, and, this is so true. Honestly, this is yeah, so true. and it's it's um, it's infuriating. Um, <laughs> but when I left, actually, when I left Blue Smart, um, a friend of mine that I made through YC um, actually reached out and was like, "This has to exist." at a better price point and in a more seamless uh, way. And um, so my friend, he's the founder and CEO of a company called Flexport. Oh, Ryan um, Peterson? Yep. Okay. So Ryan- um, He's like a legend amongst uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Ryan uh, had the idea. He was like, do this. And then he he and uh, another YC founder became um, our first two angel investors. Um, and uh I, I honestly was not convinced that it was a great idea to begin with, but um, you know it was really after looking into it that I realized that it's it's a massive opportunity that represents a fundamental change in how we build offices out. 
So you did your uh, two million seed run by uh, from Slow Ventures. That's correct. Who Jill or, um, or uh, who is who else? No, so, so Slow Ventures. Uh, it's like Kevin Collarin and Will Quist. Oh, I, I've messed up my VCs. <laughs> yeah. um, well, why why did you go with them? Uh, you know, basically, I think when when you t- when you talk to venture capital investors, you want to find somebody who shares as much conviction and passion around your vision as you do, and. Uh, with slow, um, they shared the conviction and they shared the passion around uh, the problem. And uh, one angle um, that we talk about often is the importance of uh, mental health in the workplace and thinking and talking about mental health and employers being able to provide space for um, mental health. And the phone booth, you know, we did this collaboration with Calm. I saw Calm it booth yeah, right here as in your office. And it's a, uh, a, a way for employers to provide dedicated space for wellness, right? Um, and uh, the, the, the hatred that people have about the open floor plan, it's real. It causes, it's very distressing. It's, um, and it, you know, people actually, uh, there, there's studies that show that people in open floor plans call in sick at a much higher rate uh, than um, employees who have private offices. Um, so did Headspace not return your emails or something? Well, Calm is uh, now the number one app uh, okay. for wellness. Yeah, they have... so it makes sense. Number one app, number one phone booth, exactly. come together, match made in heaven. Exactly. What? Uh, so what's the vision for like five years from now? What are some of the other products you're going to create? Well, so the vision is that uh, the office goes from something that is – Hated to hated, loved. yeah, hated, but also fixed in time, and then something that you just live with for ten years. Because you know, uh, the world that we're moving away from is ten-year leases, construction, and then you just you 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 live and work out of a, a space that's suboptimal for ten years, right? So, what we want to do is is move towards um, what we call adaptive architecture, uh, an environment where. Um, you can have an office that's actually iterative that can be always continually optimized for the needs of the people inside. Uh, and the only way that you can iterate a physical built environment in the way that you would a digital you know, product is by having modular modularity, right? So we really think about um, what does the office look like if you have kind of this Lego blocks concept where you can um, configure and reconfigure test uh, collect data and then you know um, apply those data and insights back into the office design. So how much does a room cost? Our product costs uh, $3,500, 100-day risk-free trial, free shipping included. Oh, this is pretty cheap compared to, I think, Poppins, like eleven grand or ten grand. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the uh, – we were not the first company to um, introduce a flat-packed phone booth, but I think the insight we had was um, – you, you actually need a lot of phone booths to solve the problem at scale. To solve the problem of noise and lack of privacy in the office, you need uh, you know, more or less one phone booth for every eight employees. Now, if, you, if, if the product costs $10,000, the companies are simply, they're just not going to make that investment. So we really tried to target a new price point that would enable companies to solve the problem at scale. And how'd you come up with the 3,500 number? How, did, how much does it cost to make this thing? Uh, so, well, you really want to do price-based costing as opposed to cost-based pricing, right? Well, so you want to well, hold up, hold up. That's a, even for a finance guy. That that's a swirl of the numbers. You, you, Slow down. You really want to start 
off uh, by understanding what the willingness to pay is and understanding, um, you know, what kind of value you're bringing. And then you work backwards from that price to what is the, the cost that you can uh, put into your product and to, for, to have a margin that actually makes sense for your business, right? So when we, before we even, you know, started selling the product, um, I you know, called up as many founders as I could and startup founders and basically was like, this is a problem that I know you have. Here's the idea. And here is what I think it should cost. Like, what do you think? And I tr just tested different price points and uh, asked, um, had as many conversations as I could to figure out that willingness to pay. And um, it was right around $3,000. I think that if you go too far below $3,000, people are like, what is this made out of? Uh, they oh, really? really start to question the quality. So they don't think that 3000 is expensive? I think three thousand dollars is kind of right. I think that is, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, three to four thousand dollars. I would say is kind of right at that willingness to pay. Hmm. Um, but then, you know, the companies that had uh, products selling for eight or ten thousand, it's, it's just that seems and feels really yeah. cost prohibitive. Um, and the, you know, before we entered the scene, I think that there just weren't there weren't enough phone booths in the world. And yeah, it turns out that like 90% of our customers have never purchased a phone booth before. Like we're the first product that they've ever uh, considered and purchased. And it's because uh, we've been able to open the market uh, at this new price point. Are there any interesting ideas for the future? Like, can I pitch one right now? Please. What about uh, do like a London? Uh, okay, obviously, you get this probably every twenty four hours, but a London uh, phone yeah. booth. Yeah, yeah, we have customers who've done it themselves, and also I guess is a licensing thing. I'm assuming uh, that you have to work with. Lynn? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that's okay, just that's say the idea is stupid. Just say, just say <laughs> it. Uh, the other one we get a lot is the Superman. You know, Superman. Oh, right? I, I've never gotten into the Marvel or the animated uh, series. So, so we have um, Hulu is one of our customers. And uh, they've been incredibly creative with uh, the, our phone booths, and they've like, they've made every single phone booth into like ha has like a movie theme, which is pretty cool. Yeah. What about um, so? What's the customer? Who's the customer that's bought the most number of uh, booths over time? Is it a large company or is it a small like a startup or like a someone like so? Some of your customers are Nike, J.P. Morgan, Google, Salesforce. So actually, uh, the, it's really comes from. The, the, our largest customers come from the flexible office like segment. So companies like WeWork and Notel. Uh, okay, other so, than those, but those are you know. What about uh, yeah. like, so because they don't buy it for their corporate office; they buy it for their locations, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so they they buy it in large volume. Um, one of the ones that we're proud of is Wayfair. Um, okay. So you know, so Wayfair because their their business is buying and selling furniture online. Yeah. Um, they're, you know, you would think that they're very savvy, among the savviest of buyers, and um, they've bought hundreds of units from us. Really? Uh, hundreds? Hundreds, yeah. Like 200? Yeah. Oh, my God. So do, do they have, like, a, a, a room room or, like, where they have other, like, where do they, like, put them <laughs> no, in there? No, you know, I mean, they, like, you go to their headquarters and the our product are, is just lined um, across the walls. Wow. And, uh, like I said, you know, to really solve the problem... <laughs> Like people are on the phone all the time, and uh, if you want to create space where they're not going to be distracted or distracting, uh, you need you know literally one phone booth for every eight to ten employees. Do you um do you think like it gets a little aesthetically kind of like an eyesore like if there's if they're lined up after one after the other? Or? No, actually, I think it it actually um, 
I, I, our design is one of the, is one of the selling points and why, one of the reasons why people love our product. Um, and it fits. It actually looks very natural for the product to be lined up against the wall. So what about um, so you've, so it's interesting fact is you reached a ten million dollar kind of run rate or however you want to call it a few months after launching. What was that like? Who was your first big customer? So yeah, um, we're, we're we've now shot way past that. Oh, wow. um, but how much will you um, do in twenty uh, twenty twenty? Like ten million? No, actually, what about like forty or fifty maybe? More more than that. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. this is really taking off. Yeah, uh, we 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 did uh, basically thirty million dollars in two thousand nineteen alone. Wow, this is that was our second yeah. year of business. Um, when was the inflection point? Well, no, so uh, I was thinking back on it, and um, you know, one of the ways that we tested the idea and tested demand for the product was we launched. Um, you know, our first landing page very, very quickly. And uh, at first it was just a rendering of the product and kind of a, a pre-order um, button um, and explained the features of the product and all that. And we were incredibly surprised to find uh, a facilities manager from IBM uh, click on pre-order. And we we're like, wait a minute, like, how many you know, do you like for company, one unit? A company like IBM, you know, like they have all the resources in the world. They can buy, they can afford to buy products. Why are they pre-ordering this this product? And uh, that's when we realized, you know, the, wow, this this is this is a gap in the market. And this is something that need that we need to really treat this seriously and treat the opportunity seriously. But um, Microsoft, IBM, Nike. Those were like among our first hundred phone calls, honestly, and uh, and that was one of the, it's one of those moments when you know, uh, the light kind of the light bulb goes off, and you're like, wow, like, this is this is real. This is, the opportunity is um is is going to take off. So you bought the domain name room.com for a million and a half. What 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 was that conversation like with your board members? Like, hey, I wanted to drop nine, no, eight figures, seven seven figures on a uh, on a four letter. Uh, well, we're not. Yeah, we're not. We're not paying it all at once, right? Um, yeah, five years. Uh, we're paying over five years. Um, you know, I didn't know they offered installment plans for that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, for a startup, that, that it's incredibly important, right? Um, cash flow is incredibly important. Yeah. So, um, no, I mean, we we had the conversation with the board, and yeah, I was um, a little, definitely a little bit nervous about <laughs> making that purchase because it's it, it's big and it and uh, but. You know, uh, talking to the board, it's, it's very difficult to get great domain and great domain. Um, you know, I think it beyond I, I, the value is less in terms of like SEO or uh, SEM because, it, um, you know, algorithms have changed uh, to the point where I think the specific domain matters less. Um, but it just signals so much credibility quality and yeah. quality in the marketplace. And, um, you know, we've, we've experienced it. It's uh, companies, um, you know, if you imagine like if, if Facebook employers are all on the facebook.com still, like it just feels, you know, there's a credibility, um, component and, yeah. um, yeah. So the, the, the board basically said, you know what, like this is worth it. This is a good deal. And, um, uh, it's, it's in a lot of ways an asset. So the $10 for room.co just didn't cut it. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what were you? What was your domain before .com? We were on. Well, we were on getroom.com before. Okay. Before room.com. It reminds me a lot of uh, when Mark Laurie bought Jet.com, mm-hmm. and I think, but his round was like two hundred million or whatever. Yeah. Because he had sold 
uh, Quidsy, I think was the name of the company to Amazon for five fifty million. So the, then the when, diaper company. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when he raised his next round, obviously he had no trouble raising money. So then I think the way he explained in an interview. Um, or maybe I'm just making this up. I think I remember reading an interview when he said it's so, like, well, if you're spending two hundred million dollars on on marketing and like that, oh, the, the thing people are all going to see is the name. You know, might as well just get Jet.com, right? Because yeah. if you think about it that way. Um, so talk about um, so how does how does one set one of these up? Do they have to call in a a, a, hand, a person handy or a thumbtack? So we, we spend a lot of time and energy just obsessing over that assembly process. And um, the design of the product is such that a layperson can assemble it. So if it's a 10-person startup, oftentimes it's just the office manager and, uh, and you know someone else at the company who will assemble it. It takes two people. Um, if it's a larger company... It takes two to tango also, yeah. Yeah. If it's a larger company, then they typically will have like a, a facilities team. But it's been designed where it's just one tool, takes less than an hour, um, no power drills needed, and um, customers can do it themselves. Or uh, we also offer that white glove um, delivery as well, and we probably assemble about half of our orders. And do you charge extra for that? We do. Yeah. And how much for? Uh... Five hundred and fifty dollars. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't come cheap. Uh, so speaking of not coming cheap, you make these in Indiana as opposed to China. What was the reason behind that? So in my in my prior company um, at BlueSmart, we had set up manufacturing in China, and so I, I definitely had exp- uh, a lot of experience setting up supply chain in China. And you know, for a startup, um, there are things that you really want to optimize for. You want to optimize for agility. You want to optimize for the um, for convenience and and as well. And the truth is about China is that you can get kind of low-cost production. You know, that's what it's known for. But oftentimes you have to commit to really high minimum order quantities. So our first suitcase order, you know, is basically like 5,000 units. And so you don't that, that means that you have 5,000 units coming off of a production line where you don't really have an opportunity to iterate, optimize, adapt to customer feedback. So that was a learning from... The last startup that I took with me to to Room is, you know, we want to um, set up a supply chain in a manufacturing setup that can accommodate change and iteration. Talk about how did you find that factory? Like, uh, okay, like if someone wants to make a a D2C apparel brand, there's there's precedent for that. But if you want to make a phone booth, you don't just, you know, open up the yellow pages and look for phone booth manufacturers. No, you have to um, you have to think about what manufacturing capabilities you really need, what type of machinery uh, is required. Uh, you have to think about kind of local um, supply chain ecosystem. Like, are, are, you know, uh, are you manufacturing in an area that where people are able to go to the other sub suppliers? And so there, there are a number of, of factors. But then once you kind of understand what you're looking for, uh, then it's just about do a lot of diligent research, um, and it's a little bit like pulling at a yarn. You just, you know, one call leads to another call, and then eventually you find a manufacturing partner um, that is a good fit for your business. So how often do you eat at Village Taverna? <laughs> um, I would say once every couple weeks. Yeah. Uh, so for people who don't know, that's your favorite restaurant in New York, right? It's one of them, yeah, for sure. Uh, what about uh, so what? What about it makes it so interesting? It's it's great Greek food. 
uh, it's like home style. It's cooked very much like uh, in traditional um, style. And so the ingredients are fresh, um, very high quality. Uh, and it's always, it's got the right kind of balance. You know, so some of the restaurants in New York, um, if you if you want to go without a reservation, it can take hours uh, uh, of waiting in line, or you just can't, or you have to make a reservation. So Village Taverna is a restaurant that um, I think strikes the right balance for um, being busy, but also being available. Talk about, um, wait, so, so you don't like Olive Garden? or Well, actually, I'm so, you're, you're a little well off, so I guess that makes sense for uh, <laughs> for people like me, college students. I'm a big fan of Chipotle, yeah. um, Honeygrow. That's more like a Philly thing. What about Dos Toros? Oh, so uh, I work at this startup called Jerry Media, and so Doris Toros is a client. Um, okay. We've done some ads from, but I've never eaten there. Yeah, uh, but I would say this I'm, is a New York I, I thing. I prefer Dos Toros to, to Chipotle. Chipotle. Well, I'm more of um, yeah. Uh, so there's no Dos Toros outside of New York that much. I don't think so. But uh, sure, so yeah, sure. but uh, um, Sweet Green. Are you like, do? Are you a fan of Sweet Green? Yeah, absolutely. I can't believe they raised at a billion and a half valuation for like a food. Usually, you know. Um, yeah. So speaking of fundraising. Uh, was it hard to raise money for a hardware product? It's it's funny, you know. I think that um, investors go hot and cold on hardware. Um, when uh, we were doing Blue Smart, um, and it, it was really at the height of like IoT and and product crowdfunding seemed to be this um, new way of launching products and doing it in a capital efficient manner. And like it was very easy to raise for hardware in uh, 2015. Um, when we started raising in 2018, um, it was it it was fine, honestly. Um, uh, but you know, I think I, I think investors go back and forth, and they uh, they they really do go hot and cold on sectors. Got it. So let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Sure. If you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would it be? Um, Hawaii. If you had an unlimited supply of one thing for the rest of your life, what is it? Sushi, scotch tape? Water. Okay, you're smart, yeah. If you could live in any sitcom, which one would it be? Um, the Wonder Years. Okay, I haven't heard of that. <laughs> what? What's, so what are some of your favorite shows? Uh, I don't, honestly, I don't really watch very much TV. So even when you're in college, you didn't watch that much. Um, not really. You know, when I was in college, and it's not, it's not like I'm that old, but you know, there was no streaming. I'm 33. Okay. Yeah. So, um, movies. Do you have any favorite? Um, yeah, I love watching movies. Um, I loved. I was thinking about it. I, I love Slumdog uh, Millionaire. Millionaire. Yeah, yeah that's a good movie. Um. So if a movie, speaking of movies, if a movie was being made of you and you could choose the actor to play you, who would you choose? Gosh, you know, I mean, it, it just brings up that there aren't very many Asian What about the, the doctor? Uh, no. So there's Jackie Chan, right? Jackie Chan. He's, um, he's, a, he's a little old. No, the guy who was in, you're right, actually. Who, the guy who was in The Hangover, was that was that the... the um, Ken, Ken... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, it's, it's, it's basically, you know, whatever Asian actor you can think of, yeah. right? <laughs> For me, I, I think it would be um, Kumal or Kun... Kun yeah. uh, the one in Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah, The show. Oh, uh, Kumal... Nagarinjan, um, Nagarinjan, yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of Asian names, they're pretty hard to pronounce as well. If you could have... Um, 
if you could, well, let's do this one. If you could give one sentence advice about how to live life, what would it be? Especially to our audience, which is college students, and they're entering the quote unquote real world. One sentence of advice? Yeah. Uh, I would say never stop asking questions and keep learning. That's really nice. Next question. Yell out the first word that comes to your mind right now. Stop. Oh, okay. I guess that's a that's a it's a cue for us to uh. I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, uh, some let's wrap up with um, what childish things do you still do today as an adult? Childish things. It's you know. I mean, uh, napping comes to mind. I yeah. love napping. What's the scariest thing you've ever done for fun? Uh, canyoning. What's something about you that people would be surprised to know? I, um, what would be some? something surprising about you? Um, what would be surprising? Eccentric. Did you do anything you know interesting as a high schooler? Do you have a fun activity or a hobby you like now? Um, no, I mean, I, 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 I'm a pretty low key person. I, I love reading. I like, honestly, my, the hobby for me is like staying at home and reading. Do you have a Kindle? <laughs> uh, no, I actually, I buy books. Oh, wow. Yeah. What about, um, yeah, because the, uh, making all your furniture with plastic bottles kind of, uh, cancels out the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the tree killing with the, uh, yeah, the books. Yeah, I guess I, I love, I love feeling the, <laughs> the paperbacks. Yeah. What's the best prank you've ever played on someone? In college, uh, we put a pyramid of full gla- uh, plastic cups with water, filled with water, outside of the door of our, you know, our RA. Oh, so when he opened it, he got drenched. He didn't get drenched. There was just no way for him to. Oh, so he had to out, climb out the to, window. How how many stories up was he, this? He just had to like individually one cup at a time. Oh, that sucks, man. <laughs> what about? I've seen, have you seen the prank where the, someone leaves the door open, but they have a bucket of water on top of the door? So when you open it, like the I've never water, seen it executed. Yeah, no, I saw it like in a TikTok. Maybe do you follow? Do you use TikTok? Or no, I don't. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, it's Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, Facebook. Like a true millennial entrepreneur. And our last question: What failure have you learned from the most? This is a little bit deeper than some of our uh, other ones, but honestly, um, so many failures, right? I think that uh, if you're not failing a lot, then you're you're probably not um, trying hard enough. Fail fast, fail often. Is that the, is that the phrase? Yeah. Well, anyway, um, thanks so much, Brian, for taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.